It is often said that great men are ahead of their time. It is, of course, totally wrong, and for this reason very popular. I am convinced that great men are above their time, and this is why they can see so clearly all the stupidities which are spread under the umbrella spirit of the time. Now, even though Chesterton died in 1936, nevertheless he had some very deep insights about the threat of feminism, which at that time was still a practically unknown disease. And in order to appreciate his remarks, we're going to place it against the background of marriage, because marriage is a natural habitat of the relationship existing between men and women. And so this is how I'm going to begin my talk. One of the remarkable things about Chesterton is his mixture of wisdom and wit. You'll have to laugh a great deal when you read Chesterton. And when the laughter has subsided, all of a sudden you start thinking. And you find out that he has said very deep things indeed. And of course you can crack jokes and the moment the joke is over it vanishes into thin air, nothing is left. But in the case of Chesterton, it gives you food for thought. He has a pitiless and sound common sense, a virtue which has been systematically abolished in our society and particularly in our educational system. Now, as I said, he lived before a time when the disease called unisex was spreading fast. And I mean, it comes back to the basic idea that men are men, and women are women, which is another way of saying they are different. And this difference is to be respected. Now, we know that modern women have a passion for imitating men, wearing trousers and cutting their hair very short, and uh, drinking or smoking, smoking cigars. Thank God they haven't learned how to grow beers, like my friend Bill. And I'm in no way convinced that they would enjoy shaving. At any rate, one thing is certain, men cannot give birth. And this is a rather important fact and shows very clearly that there are fundamental differences between men and women that are to be respected. I mean, just let us imagine for fun that the most arrogant and the most aggressive of feminists who challenged Mike Tyson, don't you marvel at the fact that I know his name, for a boxing match. I don't think she has much of a chance. Well, obviously, David conquered Goliath, but he had God on his side, and I'm in no way convinced that feminists have God on their side. Now, Chesterton remarks that if you have to create an artificial equality between the sexes, this inevitably leads to inequality and therefore injustice. He lived in a time and words such as fire women or fire or women or police women or chair women did not as yet exist. But I'm convinced that had he lived in this time he would have considered these philological additions to be tumors that call for surgery because they're certainly very unfortunate. And it is precisely because men and women are different that Chesterton tells us that the great and glorious trouble of the love of woman becomes possible. Now let me repeat, the great and glorious trouble 
of the love of woman. In other words, that a man falls in love with a woman because she's not a man, because she's different, because she happens to be a woman. Marriage is not double narcissism. Marriage implies a transcending act in which another person's world, the world of masculinity for women and the world of femininity for men, opens up. And it is interesting that Chesterton says, great and glorious, because he knows that the relationship between man and woman is one of the greatest, deepest human experiences. I don't speak of supernatural experiences, I speak of human experiences. And simultaneously as troubles, because obviously men and women are so very different that a lot of adjustments will have to be made, as we all know, and this is, or can be, troublesome. The first thing that he rejects with horror is what is called free love. To him it doesn't make any sense at all. Because a man, he says, cannot be a free lover. He's either a traitor or he's a tight man. That is the alternative. So if you happen to be married, make up your mind. You can be a traitor or you can be a tight man. Because, he says, love is something which is awfully serious. And if you decide that you're going to love or to get married for as long as it lasts, it shows that you do not love at all. The first symptom, the first typical characteristic of someone who falls in love is to say forever. But if you say, well, maybe for a week, in my case, maybe a month, in best of cases, a year, you have no idea what love is. And therefore, says Chesterton, if you decide that you're going to love for a certain time, you already pass a death sentence on your marriage. It cannot possibly last. And this for the very plain reason that you approach marriage, let me quote, as if we're just an episode, like lightning a cigarette or whistling a tune. Now you will notice that you can whistle a tune for a few moments, but try to do so for a lifetime. Do nothing but whistling, you're going to find out it cannot be done. Now to fall in love is not like lightning a cigarette or whistling a tune. It is something which is awfully important. As a matter of fact, it is so important that Keats calls it a very serious thing, a commitment. At any rate, you will notice that whatever you do in life, you might start with a great deal of enthusiasm, and after a while, because of human frailty and weakness, you might find out that it's difficult. You might find out that all sorts of problems crop up that you never anticipated. And Chesterton tells us this is a moment when coercion is a gift. Coercion is a tremendous advantage because it forces you to do something that you will abandon doing as soon as you have difficulties. I tell you something, if you expect to go into any type of work or any type of relationship, and as soon as a difficulty crops up, you're going to see that is the end of it. And I would not have stayed in my job for 24 hours. I was coerced to do so because I had to earn my living. And I have the feeling that to be in a city university for a Roman Catholic was a unique chance. And so I hang on. And I'm glad that I did. But had I followed my instinct, I would have run off immediately. Now, the same thing is true of marriage. Suppose that a small difficulty crops up and you say, well, I expected heaven. And all of a sudden, I see that there are difficulties and you run off. Then you never understood the blessing of coercion. 
non, in other words, there are moments when you do things because it is your duty or because it is the honorable thing to do and not because you feel like it. Moreover, Chesterton is going to take up the defense of monogamy. He tells us that he could never understand, you know, modern people sort of say, well, unless you can have as many wives as you please, well, actually marriage doesn't pay. He says, all the difficulties of marriages are certainly a little or small price to pay for the gift of seeing one woman. Why would you like to see hundreds and thousands of them? It shows that you have not appreciated the gift that it means to have one that you can call yours. Now, this is glorious indeed. But simultaneously, it is going to bring about its problems and difficulties because... Chesterton tells us men and women have a different structure. And this is something that we all know. They happen to be different. And it's nonsense to say men and women are identical except for a very small difference that cannot be changed as yet. They are different. They have different structures and this is what we're going to analyze. Now, obviously, if you have two people living together who have a different structure, this is going to create certain difficulties. St. Chesterton says when two people live so clearly together, they have two opportunities. One of them is to make each other happy, and the second one is to make each other miserable. Now, obviously, many people happen to prefer the second alternative, and they make hell for their partner. And this is something which is very easy when you live next to another person. Now, Chesterton says, I have absolutely no understanding for American laws allowing divorce for incompatibility. He says, in that particular case, I do not understand how a single American marriage can go on, because his basic idea is that women and men are essentially incompatible. Now, the whole question of making a marriage work is to find a solution to this incompatibility. I might not agree with Chesterton that men and women are essentially incompatible, but I do agree that they have very different structures and very different priorities, and for this reason, in every marriage, a lot of adjustments will have to be made in order for the marriage to work. Let us turn to men first. First sex. Don't forget, women are the second sex, according to Simone de Beauvoir. So let us turn to the first sex. What does Chesterton have to say about the first sex? He says, quote, Men are all theoretical, whether they talk about God or about golf, unquote. In other words, men have a passion between us, an odd passion for theories. And they can, you know, discuss these theories forever and ever and ever. They have a sort of passion for it. A woman has a greater interest in what is concrete. What are all these theories about? If you have no sense, you don't see what is right in front of you. A man might be fascinated to write a treatise on education and go into all sorts of fantastic theories about education like Plato convinced you know, for example, that in order to have an ideal system, you have to have a communion or community of wives and children for the higher class. You know, that was, of course, a theory, and the theory was nonsense. Now, late in his life, shortly before his death, 
Plato gave the theory. He says, because, regretfully, it is impossible to convince women that this is desirable. Now, of course, women were right and Plato was wrong. And, you know, if this is something that a Platonist tells you, well, you can take my word for it. You know, they simply say it doesn't work, it doesn't make any sense at all, and therefore, forget your theory and just turn it all to concrete facts of life. It is told in the biography of Chesterton, written by Maisie Ward, that when he was engaged to Francis Block, who became his wife, one particular evening he was, he had a furious discussion with his brother Cecil. Cecil was five years younger, and from the moment that he was five until his death, Gilbert and Cecil discussed the wildest theories for hours on end. And Francis came to Gilbert and said to him, you know, Gilbert, I have to catch my train. He didn't move. He continued to discuss. And then she tried again and again and again. Nothing doing. He didn't even notice that she was there. Now, I know quite a few contemporary women who would have broken the engagement for mental cruelty. Francis Block was wise enough to marry Chesterton. You know, even though it certainly implied all sorts of very peculiar adventures. For example, it is said also that one day he sent a telegram and saying, I am in Leeds. Where should I be? <laughs> now, to be married to a genius can be a little bit exhausting. At any rate, men and women have different priorities. And what is the priority of women? The answer is love. Any sound, any normal woman, any woman who deserves to be called a woman, knows that love is the most important thing in life. Love of God, love of husband or child or friends or neighbors. This is what makes a woman to be a woman, that you know that love is absolutely central. Says Chesterton, Men have another priority. Their priority is comradeship. This is what they, their heart goes in the direction of comradeship. Women stand for the dignity of love and men for the dignity of comradeship. Now I tell you, between us I'm convinced that deep down men know full well that women are right and that love is more important than comradeship. But why do they like comradeship so much? I say for a very plain reason. It doesn't make any demand upon you. It doesn't, you know, it allows you to do whatever you please. You can scream and shout and spit and smoke and do whatever men used to do. Now women, of course, have joined them and also spit and smoke and so on and so on. But I mean, when I was a child, that was a sort of privilege reserved to men, that women did not do it. You can take off your jacket, you can put up your feet on the desk, which women do today. You can be easy going, you can just take it easy. The very moment that a woman steps into the room, you have to put on your jacket and you have to behave yourself. You know, in other words, comradeship allows you to live as you please, whereas love makes demand upon you that many people like to escape from. You know, from time to time it is fine, but not from morning to night. Says Chesterton, the affections in which women excel have so much more authority and intensity 
than pure comradeship, that it would be totally washed away if we are not rallied and gathered in clubs and corps, colleges and banquets and regiments. I mean, in other words, this is how men protect their passion for comradeship by escaping into all male clubs. But let us not forget that Chesterton died in 36, because today he started proclaiming the greatness and the beauty of all male clubs. He could be sued, you know, for discrimination against women. Now, one thing is certain, love forces one to a depth which many men shy away from, for the very plain reason that it is deep. And I mean, this is one of the reasons why many men, even though they know that love is so important, they shy away from it and they prefer to escape into clubs in which they can just discuss theories forever. According to Chesterton, there are three things that unfortunately women do not understand at all. Liberty, equality, and fraternity. And for this reason, he says that writers were very wise indeed to speak about the equality of men, not mentioning women, because according to him, women have no sense for it. This structural difference between men and women also explains the fact that sociologists and anthropologists can, call, can speak such nonsense. Let me just mention one of them. You know, I'm not going to read the quotation of Chesterton, but I'm just going to give you the gist of it. Does it suppose that an anthropologist or a sociologist happens to land in a southern sea island and he sees that the woman is working in the fields at noontime when it's hot and what are men doing? Can you guess? Playing the flute or smoking in the shade of a tree. And then the sociologist comes in, takes notes and says in this particular island Men are selfish and brutal slave masters, and women are just plain slaves. Comments Chesterton, you don't need to go to a southern sea island to see that sort of thing. You can see it in Brixton, just outside of London, and you're going to see the very same thing. Women slaving and doing all sorts of work, and men enjoying themselves reading the newspaper or discussing politics or whatever it might be. He says, no, these are facts, and you cannot deny facts. But the whole question is that you will interpret your facts according to your philosophy of life. And I beg you to remark that most philosophies are wrong, and there is one which is right. And you're going to have this right philosophy if you are truth-loving and truth-seeking, which was not necessarily the highest quality of Margaret needs. So, he says, in fact... I am absolutely convinced that women are more conscientious and less pleasure-seeking than men. And for this reason, on the basis of this observation, which I believe we would agree with, I do not believe that women were working in the fields because men told them to do so and they obeyed. But I am firmly convinced that they were working in the fields because they told men to go and men disobeyed. Now, of course, suppose that the baby is crying and screaming 
and needs to be fed, and simultaneously you have to take care of the, the cooking, and your husband is reading the newspaper, and you ask him to help, and he says, and he doesn't do anything about it. Well, you're going to rage and fume, but you're not going to say, all right, I let the baby starve too. Obviously, your maternal instinct is going to take over, and you'll do it. I do believe it is true that women are more conscientious than men. You know, for many years I had an all-female public and then it became mixed. And for many, many years I had male students and female students. Now, those giving their work on time were usually the women. And, you know, I noticed that while they are extremely conscientious and hardworking and ambitious, unless men are truly motivated, they're incredibly lazy. And that is the basic idea of Chesterton. Men are lazy. They hate to work except when they are forced to, for example, in the army. And then all of a sudden they have to keep running because they have no alternative. But basically, they do not enjoy doing it. They much prefer to discuss theories, you know, which are going to change the world sooner or later. Says Chesterton... The reason why men have a passion for theories and ideas explains why they have been the great inventors of mankind. You know, if you take the great scientists and the great philosophers and the great theologians and the great artists and you go on and on, who are they? Men. Simone de Beauvoir is going to say, well, obviously because women's talents have been killed in the bud. But wait! Thanks to feminism, we're going to liberate women, and then all of a sudden, we're going to have a Michelangelo, or we're going to have, or something of the sort, you see. Just give women a chance, and they will produce something absolutely amazing. I'm perfectly delighted if this is so, because we could use another Michelangelo in the world in which we live, when you realize all the horrors that are being produced. But one thing is absolutely certain, he's missing the point. People, Simone de Beauvoir is totally missing the point because what she assumes is that productivity, that creativity is a thing that matters. And she tells us that women produce nothing. Well, obviously, to give birth to a child is to produce nothing. You know, what is a child? I mean, after all, it's nothing at all. Whereas if you have an ugly painting, at least you have, you know, creativity. Of course, what she totally overlooks is that sooner or later the world is going to be destroyed by fire, as St. Peter tells us in his second epistle. Whereas every child born on this earth is born with an immortal soul that will live forever. Let us not forget that women have this amazing, receive this amazing creativity from God. That what they receive from their husband is a living seed which is so small that no microscope can see it. And after nine months, she gives back to him a living being made up to God's image and likeness. From this point of view, it should be quite clear that women are actually not producing nothing. Nor says Chesterton, when there is a passionate discussion between men about some a new idea, he says, at the end of the talk, there are two things that are typical. Number one, that no one knows who said the truly good things. Number two, that no one present in the room could actually see who was there with him because they are addressing ideas. This doesn't happen to women. If women talk together, they talk to each other and they observe each other keenly 
and will tell you exactly how the woman was dressed and how her hair do was and this and that and that. You know, they register because concrete things are important to women. I happen to know two friends, as a matter of fact, they might even be in this room for all I know, who have known each other for years, speak for hours on end, and actually know nothing about their personal life. Absolutely nothing. To such an extent that if I question one of them and say, what about this and that, I say, well, we didn't discuss that. We discussed the philosophy, we discussed theology, we discussed the future of the church. But I mean, the idea of knowing whether the other one has problems or sorrows or difficulties, no, nothing of the sort. This doesn't exist. And this same friend, shame to him, may also be in this room, has to turn to me and ask me what is the date of the birth of his children. Even though I assure you absolutely solemnly that I had nothing to do with it, and nevertheless it's always the one turning to me and saying, when was my boy born? Well, I have to tell him, for the very plain reason that I consider this to be extremely important, the date of birth of a particular person. Now, Chesterton is going to tell us further that basically men are afraid of women. I'm sorry to say that good many men in this room, and I have to make the public declaration, deep down you know full well that you would rather face a battalion than to face an irate female. And you are right, because it is infinitely safer. It is said, it is said in the life of Solzhenitsyn, who faced the KGB, that he was terribly afraid when he had to get a divorce from his first wife. He was shaking in his shoes and he felt very, very insecure. Now, why are men afraid of women? There's only one exception. Chesterton says this. All men are afraid of women, even though they'd rather die than admit it. And they're right. There's only one type of man who is not afraid of women, quote, a very timid sort of man. That is the only type of male not afraid of women. Why are men afraid of women? For two reasons. And there might be more. I mean, don't forget Bill is giving me limited time, so I have to shorten my talk. Number one, because men are afraid of feelings. That's one of their peculiarities. And I mean, this is why we women consider men to be, ex with exception of my husband, of course, to be basically mad. Because feelings are things that are tremendously important in human life. Why are men afraid of feelings? You know why? I'm going to give you a feminine explanation. Because one's intelligence makes one feel very great and important. One's will gives one a feeling of power. I say, I will do so. One's heart is vulnerable. And it is very difficult for men to recognize, to admit that they are vulnerable. Christ the divine Son of God had a heart that was wounded. And this one read the liturgy of the sacred heart, wounded by our sins. Now, the heart is the house of feelings, and this enables you to be wounded. It is said in the canticle of canticles, feed me with apples, because love makes me swoon. But you know that you are vulnerable, and you know that you are weak. Whereas if you turn to your intelligence and your will, it gives you the illusion of strength. You know, this is the moment that you can, so to speak, challenge God. 
and simply say, I can do without you. You can't do that the very moment that you love. On top of it, there's another reason, says Chesterton, where men are afraid of women, and rightly so. It is because women see through them. You know, women are, <laughs> women are very intuitive. And I mean, even though they may not be as intellectual as some men are, nevertheless, they're extremely intuitive and can perceive lots of things even though nothing has been said. So Chesterton says, and this is truly deserves to be read because it's so marvelous, the same women who are ready to defend their men through sick and sin in their personal intercourse with these men are morbidly lucid about the thinness of his excuses and the thickness of his head. A man's friend likes him, but leave him as he is. His wife loves him and is always trying to turn him into somebody else. Women are an utter mystics in their creed and utter cynics in their criticism. Love is not blind. It is the last thing that it is. Love is, makes one see. And the more it loves, the more it sees. Now, this is a very, very profound insight. It is quite true that women will defend their husbands in front of everybody else, but wait until they get to the bedroom, and then all of a sudden she's likely to tell him exactly what she thinks about him. You might recall the very witty play of Molière, the French playwriter, and there's a man pitilessly beating his wife, and so another man comes in and wants to protect her, and she turns to him furiously and says, Leave us alone if it pleases me to be beaten. Well, this is something that she says in front of her. The moment that she's alone with him, she's going to find back and scratch him. Now, at any rate, it is absolutely true to say that women criticize their husbands more than husbands criticize their wives. I say normally. Women are very critical beings and will always find something to be improved in their husbands. Now, why are we so critical? I say simply because I believe that when we fall in love, we see so much beauty in these men. We see so much clearly, or so clearly, the image of God in their souls and what they are supposed upon to be, that when we live with them and discover their weaknesses, we get very impatient and say, no, no, you know, there's still a lot of chiseling to be done and I'm going to help you to do it. Whereas, as Chesterton told us, men are basically lazy and as long as their wives' faults do not bother them too much, they'd rather have peace. And it is interesting that men have been traditional soldiers. And when they come home, there's one thing that they want, peace at all costs. And I mean, this is why men can be so yielding and so weak towards women. And this is why some of our dear beloved bishops do not always stand up very courageously to feminists. But I mean, let us not forget that their role is not an easy one because to face irate females is no joke. Now, there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that women are right in giving a priority to love over comradeship. Because after all, let us keep in mind that in heaven there'll be no room for theories and endless discussions. Therefore, if you want to discuss, do it on this earth, because then it's over. When you die, what you're going to do is to face your creator who is a person 
and the whole of our heavenly beatitude is going to be the adoration of God and the love union with all our beloved one in him. God is the person par excellence, and therefore it shows very clearly that we have to expect happiness, not from theories, not from abstractions, but from persons. Now, let us now turn to what Chesterton has to say about feminism against his background. He did not live, he wasn't privileged to know Simone de Beauvoir and Betty Friedan. But I'm sort of happy for these women because I think they would have had a very hard time dealing with Chesterton. According to these two famous females, women are kept in the homes as prisoners and are prevented from developing their talents and all their virtues by being slaves of men. And this is why they are totally unproductive, as I have mentioned before. Chesterton says, women are not kept at home to keep them narrow. They are kept at home to keep them broad. Because, in fact, if you turn to professional work, what is professional work? To endlessly do the same thing. What do firemen do? They fight against fire. What do policemen? They arrest criminals. What do carpenters do? They do carpenting. And so forth and goes on and on and on. You work on computers for hours on end or you sell stocks for hours on end. How exciting. Whereas, the very moment that you happen to be a wife in a home, you're going to find out that you have to cook, to wash, to clean, to buy, to educate, to sew, to, and so on and so on. In other words, you have such a variety of tasks that you go mad because you cannot master them all. Whereas most men, says Chesterton, are simply cursed to be monomaniacs. They keep doing the same thing forever and ever. A woman, of course, is called upon to do a tremendous variety of things. And just let us see the pitiful situation in which males find themselves. Quote, the electrical engineer has to be very electrical, otherwise he's going to be outstripped by another engineer still more electrical than he is. I mean, in other words, the world of men is a world of competition. The very moment that you enter the world, the workforce, you have to be competitive. It is a rat race. And if you are not the best, you are pitilessly eliminated. A woman has to be a cock, but she doesn't have to be, thank God, a competitive cock. Otherwise, I'll be out of a job, believe me. She has to sew, but she doesn't have to be a professional uh, tailor. She has to paint, but she doesn't have to be a professional painter. She has to do lots of things. She has to be an educator, but she doesn't have to be a jury. She, can, she just has to take it. I mean, of course, this is supposed to be ironical, so please laugh. <laughs> You are supposed to be the great educator of the 20th century in the United States. Now, in other words, a woman doesn't have to compete. She can go at her own pace. She can follow her own rhythm. But she has a tremendous variety of tasks. Of course, the first great amazing gift that women give to the world is to give birth. But afterwards, she has to become an educator. Says Chesterton, shall all mankind be specially surgeons or peculiar plumbers? Shall all humanity be monomaniac? No. Tradition has decided that only one half 
of humanity will be monomaniac, has decided the other half in every house they will be a tradesman and a jack of all trades. And the jack of all trades is, of course, the woman. Well, she gives birth, and then she has to educate a child. Now, do you realize the immensity and the beauty and the depth of this task? And Chesterton said, I could never understand why some women find it exciting to teach the rule of three to twenty children and to find it boring to open the universe to their own child. In one case, you keep repeating the rule of three forever and ever and ever. In the other case, you open the world to your own universe, to your child. She can watch the child's development. She receives its first smile. She notices with joy that the child starts to recognize her and smile at her. She is the one to nourish him, to feed him, to form him, to answer his questions. I mean, in other words, the mission of women is so fantastic that traditional wisdom has said we attribute to women the rule of thumb and mother wit, which of course has a tremendous influence on her further development. Let us be quite honest. Most jobs are hopelessly boring. We have to do them because we have to earn a living. But all of a sudden to discover that it is much more exciting to join the workforce than to take care of the development of a human being is sheer madness. As a matter of fact, if you prefer, you choose, even though you don't have to, to join the workforce instead of remaining at home. What you're doing is to escape into jail. You choose essay and you escape into it instead of being liberated from it. At home, the wife is a queen. Outside, she becomes another slave in the workforce. Now, Chesterton goes back to a thing he has already mentioned before, that by nature, men are basically lazy. And this is why he says that his clerk did not shirk their duty, our whole commercial system would break down. You see, I mean, you can go, I mean, take bureaucracy. You know, the basic principle of bureaucracy, if you bring papers to be signed or something of the sort, is to do it as slowly and as badly as possible, so that it's going to drag on and on and on forever. I recall one spending four days in the public library of Vienna. Now, to get a book, I just had the feeling that I was torturing these librarians and say, why don't you come back tomorrow? I said, because tomorrow I'll be gone. I have to get it today. And then they dragged their feet, you know, and in fact, took them about three and a half minutes to get the book. But somehow they resent the fact that they were being disturbed. They were chatting so peacefully. And there comes a woman insisting that she needs a book and needs it immediately. You see, according to Chesterton, the catastrophe that has taken place in the 20th century is that all of a sudden women, with their passion for efficiency or their commitment to whatever they are doing, all of a sudden they join the workforce. He says, under the inroad of women who are adopting the system, you know, who are adopting the system, unprecedented and impossible course of taking the system seriously and doing it well. This is why they do office work so well, and this is why they should not do it. 
you know, the basic idea, you know, there are certain things that should not be taken seriously, and men are good at it. They know that it doesn't deserve to be taken seriously, but women do. Why? Because, unfortunately, they put their heart in whatever they're doing. Says Chesterton, women fight for desk and typewriters as for hearth and home, and develop a sort of wolfish wifehood in behalf of the invisible head of the firm. And this is why they do office work so well and should not do it. Now, in other words, a woman, if she remains at home, can contemplate the horizon. A man can only contemplate the small little segment of reality which is placed in front of his nose. And this is why, says Chesterton, and he's quite a gentleman, he's going to say, you know, women is actually the prerogative of um, excuse me, wisdom is a prerogative of women, whereas cleverness is the attribute of men. He does not deny that women have been mistreated. He says, as a matter of fact, he says, if you study the history of the world, there are all sorts of abominable abuses that men have imposed on women because they happen to be stronger. But this is how Chesterton is going to disagree completely with the feminists. Because he says, what I would like to abandon, to, ab to abolish, is are the abusers. Whereas, what the feminists want to abolish is femininity. As a matter of fact, his definition of a feminist is a woman who cannot stand female characteristics. <laughs> and for this very reason, women detest other women. You know, if you have two women in an office, you have war. What he wants to do is to destroy the tyranny, to destroy the abuses, but to respect the greatness of femininity. Now, modern women claim that they have a right to wear trousers like men. Says Chesterton, this right is as nonsensical as the right to wear a false nose. You know, and obviously, it should be quite clear that the anatomy of men and women is very different, as some of you might have observed. And for this reason, a type of clothing can be quite adequate or satisfactory for men and can be catastrophic for women. So, I mean, just out of sheer vanity, it is desirable that women should continue to wear feminine habits, you know, which is being abolished more and more in the world in which we live. Of course, there are cases in which it can be legitimate if you go skiing, for example. I would strongly recommend it and certainly not say that if you have a long skirt and you go skiing, well, you're going to have problems. But I mean that we choose it, we prefer it, we consider it to be more desirable simply shows that we have totally lost sight of what truly matters. Concerning the, way, the, the right to wear trousers, Chesterton has a delightful remark. And the remark is that in fact you will notice that when men truly exercise an important function, this judge or priest or pope, what do the men wear? Skirts. This is what they choose. You know, because it simply shows that a skirt symbolizes dignity. He calls it the long training robes of female dignity. The whole world is under petticoat government. For even men wear petticoats when they wish to govern. 
Now, this is a very profound remark. I mean, in other words, you recognize, you take, you take abbots, you take priests. You see, I mean, this is why I resent it so much today. You know, that priests, or very many priests, can no longer understand the beauty, monks, the beauty of wearing the habit, which has a dignity and a beauty that makes of an ugly man someone quite respectable. I mean, just to show you, I mean, just, I'd say I would do it out of sheer vanity. The conclusion that we can draw is that we live in a totally crazy world. It's a sad conclusion, but I'm afraid it's a very true conclusion. And Chesterton writes, as a sort of encouragement, the 18th century thought itself the age of reason. The 19th century thought itself the age of common sense. The only thing that can be said so far about the 20th century is that it is the age of uncommon nonsense, unquote. And on this cheerful and encouraging note, I leave you hoping that with God's grace you will do your share to bring the world back on track, that is to say, back to God. Thank you.